Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey folks, Oliver here. This week I interview Michael Granoff, partner at Maneve Mobility, an early stage investment firm specializing in transport technologies, including micromobility. Michael has been around the space in a very long time and we had a great discussion about his involvement with Better Place and the boom-bust nature of new transportation tech. Before we jump into the episode, I do want to thank our sponsor and a project that I'm very excited about, Helium. There's a whole world of devices out there, from parking meters to packages, scooters, bikes and more. All of these things should connect to the internet, but Wi-Fi and Bluetooth have a limited range, and cellular data plans like those used to connect scooters can be pricey. So wouldn't it make sense for all these devices to have their own internet, a network that works just for them so they can stay connected anywhere, anytime? Helium is building the People's Network, the world's first peer-to-peer wireless network. Powered by Helium's LongFi technology, this network enables companies to connect devices and collect data in ways never before possible by delivering secure, ubiquitous coverage at a fraction of the cost of cellular. With a range 200 times that of Wi-Fi and very low power requirements to maximize battery life, it's helping micromobilities keep track of their fleets and vehicles. I've followed them for years and I'm personally very excited about the project. It's an honor to have them sponsor the podcast. Check them out at helium.com. And now, here's Michael. Thank you very much for agreeing to chat. I'm curious, I have been very curious about Manipa Mobility for a long time. I've met Olive, I think, in San Francisco at the Micromobility Summit, but I've been following you guys for a while, and you have quite the history, and I thought maybe we could unpack that a little bit today. <laughs> so maybe thought what could be useful would be, um, do you want to just introduce yourself and let the, the audience know who you are? Sure. My name is Michael Granoff. I'm the founder and managing partner of Maniv Mobility, which is a venture fund. But interestingly enough, venture does not appear in our name, but mobility does, and that's telling because I was on a different podcast recently and they said, why limit yourself to just mobility? Why not invest in other sectors? And I said, that's the wrong question. The question is like, why have I approached mobility through the sector of a seed stage venture fund as opposed to something else? Because it's really mobility that's the essence of what we're interested in, what our passion is. And we've just found that sort of being seed stage venture investors is the best way to approach a space to be able to contribute. Excellent. And so take us through. So you're based, you have offices in Israel and in the States as well? That's right. We're based in Tel Aviv, although I've only lived in Israel the last uh, seven years. And then we have uh, an office as well in the Bay Area. Are there any uh, examples of companies that you've invested in that people might be familiar with? Sure. So we have 28 portfolio companies over two funds. Most of the first fund are Israeli technology startups, many of them in the data and connectivity space, things like Autonomo that does monetization of vehicle data, and like Aurora Labs that does over-the-air updates for vehicles and many others, and then a bunch more in the enabling of autonomy and ADAS space. That includes a high-definition radar company called Arbay Robotics. It includes a simulation company called Cognata and a teleoperation company that's uh, based jointly in the Bay Area and Tel Aviv called Phantom Auto. And that was typical of our Fund One investments. 
in fund two, our first investment was also a deep tech Israeli mobility startup. But the last several have been more towards the business model innovation, more towards the mobility service model, and have been outside Israel. Probably the best known of our portfolio companies uh, is our micromobility company, which is Rebel. That's the shared electric moped operator based in Brooklyn, New York, but now operating in five U.S. cities. But we also have some others, like a company that's currently called Bolt Bikes, uh, which comes out of Sydney, Australia, and is doing uh, renting of optimized delivery bikes to couriers on a weekly or monthly basis to enable people to have the access to the best vehicle for the purpose of uh, food delivery, even if they're only intending to do it over a short period of time. Yeah. We've had Frank from Rebel on the uh, on the podcast. So thank you very much for helping uh, make that happen. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really curious about when did you get into this? Because as far as I understand, you had something to do with Better Place kind of way back in the day. And I'd love to hear that story, uh, if you'd be willing to share it. Sure. Hopefully I won't belabor the story too much, but my uh, entry portal to all of this was uh, very unusual and the path has been very circuitous. But I lived in New York most of my life before moving to Israel seven years ago and was you know, living in Manhattan and deeply affected by the events of 9-11. The couple of years following that, 02 and 03, I did a lot of reading around national security issues particularly as it related to energy policy. That was the time in which the U.S. was importing 70% of its oil, and oil comprised about 95% of transportation fuel, as it still does just about that amount. And it was not set in a free market. And the fact that also is really still the case, because you have a cartel called OPEC, which gathers every quarter, as they are doing so right now, and decides on production levels. Effectively, what they're doing is taxing every person in the world because uh, 95% of what we use and what our goods use to get around is oil. And so we all have to pay that. And they don't use that money to build us roads and bridges and things like that. And I just got increasingly frustrated as I understood that state of affairs. It led to helping a friend start an organization that we conceived together based in Washington, D.C., uh, organizations still around and doing great things, including uh, hosting Horace just uh, a week or two ago. It's called Securing America's Future Energy, safe, and can be found at uh, secureenergy.org. And the most significant thing that that organization did was really shepherd through 2006 energy bill through the U.S. Congress signed by President Bush, which increased fuel economy standards on cars and trucks that continue to be affected to this day by that legislation, and also introduced the first in the world, electric vehicle incentives. And as I began to sort of strip away the politics from the reality, I came to a deep conviction that the only scalable replacement for oil as a transportation fuel was in fact electric. And I got very passionate about it and told my wife I was gonna bet the rest of my career on the premise that ground transportation was gonna get electrified. I thought it was great for national security, great for economics, great for the environment that it happened sooner, but that economics would see to it that it would happen sooner or later. And it was at that point that I you know, sort of set out to figure out how to invest in the idea. And then famously in early 2007, had meetings in consecutive weeks with these two guys, both about my age, both sharing my conviction around electric and each having different but radical plans to make it happen. 
both were living in the Bay Area at the time. One was an Israeli named Shai Agassi, and the other was a South African, which everyone could guess. <laughs> was Elon Musk <laughs> and came away from these two meetings and really, you know, had no doubt in my mind. There was one crazy guy who thought he's going to be the first guy in a hundred years to start a successful new car company. And there's another guy who's sort of parlaying what was the trend, uh, which was networks. He was going to build networks and he was going to build infrastructure and he was going to leverage all of the existing automobile manufacturing capacity to electric by making it less expensive and more convenient for the consumer by building these networks. And I really came to favor that idea, ended up spending five years virtually in every capacity within Better Place as an investor, board member, but also working on the policy things, working on public relations and investor relations and more. There's obviously a lot to be said about Better Place. There's a whole book about it, a book I initially uh, thought about writing myself, but ended up passing on to a journalist who was also a Better Place car owner. You know, suffice it to say, I still think that the model was brilliant. I think the model was not ahead of its time because the idea was not to ride the electric car wave. The idea was to create it. We obviously had very, very flawed execution. Probably the most important thing that we didn't do right was attracting multiple car makers. We got Renault under Carl Scone's leadership, interestingly enough, who had committed to building 100,000 battery switchable electric cars. But we did not succeed at attracting additional automakers. Had we come to market, not with one kind of clumsy five-passenger sedan, but if we came to market with a half dozen different models from different brands, I think it would have been a very, very different story. And, you know, frankly, things happened so much as we expected so quickly with the oil spike of 2008, with the election of Obama and the, and the pledge to spend a trillion dollars to stimulate the economy and to favor clean energy and infrastructure. And he came into office basically owning General Motors. So the stars really uh, seemed to line up for us. And I think we got over our skis. There was a lot of hubris around it. And that ultimately ended up alienating all of the constituencies that we needed to be successful. So that failed in 2013, ironically. It was at that point that my family decided to go spend a year in Israel, um, and that year ended up becoming permanent. But that was also the moment shortly after the acquisition of Waze by Google, which was founded about 200 meters from where I'm sitting, and shortly after the IPO of uh, Mobileye, which was later then acquired by Intel for $15 billion. Uh, it turned out those were really harbingers of Israeli ingenuity and expertise in digital technologies getting applied to mobility. And I started, you know, kind of almost accidentally meeting a lot of, I would say, veteran founders, serial entrepreneurs who had an interest in applying their skills in the direction of mobility. And I was able to help them out a bit. There weren't a lot of people in Israel at the time who had actually sat across from car companies, make some connections. And then I began to um, make some angel investments in, in those companies, which is what led to the establishment of the, the fund. Thank you for that awesome background. That's an amazing story. I am very curious about, we've seen Gogoro come along and effectively in some ways replicate a lot of what tried to be done in that model. You're excited about micromobility. I mean, you guys have backed Rebel. Can you talk me through what you were thinking about for Rebel and then generally speaking, how you've been thinking about micromobility? And I know you talk a lot with Horace, so you kind of understand his thesis. Where do you agree and then disagree with him around how this space might evolve? 
where do I disagree with Horace? It'd be a hard one to respond to because I'm so inspired by his uh, vision. But I will say that what's funny about Revel is that it enables me to say that I'm still involved in a battery switchable electric vehicle company. It's just that it has two wheels instead of four and it's shared instead of owned. But I actually think that shift in paradigm is very emblematic of the way that we're now thinking about the transportation future. I would say, if you ask me, 12 years ago, I was dead certain that the biggest thing that was going to happen in transportation was that all the cars that we were driving that were internal combustion cars were going to become electric cars. And then if you ask me, four years ago, I would say all the cars that were driving are going to drive themselves. And that was the way that I viewed, and I think conventional wisdom in a lot of places, viewed the shifts in mobility. And it's just in the last few years that I've started to understand, and I think with Horace's help and others, the world's begun to understand that one trend, and I find it fascinating, actually, that this trend seems to defy geography, is urbanization. Because obviously we see it in Asia in a big, big way. But we all see it in the U.S. with big cities growing. I have a kind of microcosm of an example here in Israel where five or six years ago, the government thought it was a, an imperative to, to populate the north and the south of the country and stop building in the center of the country in the, in the suburbs of Tel Aviv to try to get people to move. And you know what happened is uh, it got more and more expensive. People didn't move. They roomed with more people. They lived with their parents. People these days, seems wherever they are, want to live more densely. It seems to be a characteristic of the age, and it doesn't seem to be something that's slowing down in any way, as we see from the statistics. And when you think about living as densely as we already are in cities, it's just incompatible with what was for 100 years, I would actually argue for exactly 100 years, from the invention of the Model T in September of 1908 to the invention of third-party apps in September of 2008. That was the age of the individually owned and operated internal combustion engine car. And then we moved, without noticing at first, into the age of digital mobility. And what digital mobility opens up is the possibility to buy rides rather than to buy vehicles. And for those rides to, in large measure, be electric-based. For those rides to be in a variety of different types of vehicles that suit the purpose, as Horace has so well demonstrated by showing just what percentage of trips are distances that really doesn't make sense to schlep a five-passenger sit down with an internal combustion engine. I vividly understood this when um, I started commuting in to Tel Aviv, which is only about 12 miles from my home, but as in many places at rush hour, that's, that's an hour trip. I decided, first of all, we didn't need, as a family, we didn't need the two cars that we had in the States, that one car was fine and that I could get around just as even more conveniently and less expensively by using a variety of both mass transit and digital mobility options. So I um, began commuting uh, sometimes by bus and sometimes by what passes for Uber in Israel, which is effectively a taxi on an app. But, you know, oftentimes I had to go in right at rush hour to be stuck in there. And then one day I see this Mobike sitting there on the curb outside my cab. And I had, I had read an article about it and I knew what it was. And I downloaded the app right there, hopped on the thing and went the last two miles to my office and said, this is fantastic. And it wasn't six months later that that same location sitting in the back of the cab, there was a bird. And I had the opportunity to take that. And it's at that point, you realize there's this physical urge to sort of get out of that traffic and to get into your own lightweight personal mobility option. 
And if you look around Tel Aviv, which I think is now well known as one of the places that's best to do micromobility, it's, the weather is great, it's flat, it's a very young city, and there are increasing amounts of bike lanes and infrastructure. Do you understand what, what the power of that is? And we at Maniv were disappointed. We uh, kind of missed that very, very rapid first wave of startups in the space. But then we met the folks from Revel. And we recognized that this was a really terrific mode in and of itself. And we're very proud to be, uh, be partners with them. And so talk me through why you liked the Revel model versus the other things that you might have been seeing in the space. Well, I can't say that we took a very close look at the kick scooter companies that came and went so quickly. And their capital needs were more than us as a small seed fund could bring to bear. But what we really liked about Revel aside from the fact that we think the founders are, are sensational, was the fact that you have a vehicle with a license plate, a vehicle that's registered with the state. In other words, it takes away all of the ambiguity about like, where is this thing supposed to be? Should it be on a sidewalk? Should it be in a bike lane? Should it be on a road? No, it's a motor vehicle. And uh, it goes up to 30 miles an hour, which means that it keeps up with traffic in the city. It's not supposed to get used anywhere where the speed limit's uh, above 30 miles an hour, but that's fine because it's built for for the city and it parks in the city parks on the streets in, in new york it parks in regular parking spots but you don't have to worry about finding parking because you can just put the thing perpendicular between parked cars so even in a city like new york parking is not a problem at all from a consumer point of view one of the things i hadn't fully appreciated until we saw revel was and i lived in new york as i said i lived in the new york region most of my life but, uh, you know, it turns out, you know, if you live in Brooklyn and Queens, which are enormous boroughs, which if they were cities of their own, would be enormous cities, they're designed, the mass transit is designed to get you into Manhattan. So you can take a subway to Manhattan. But if you want to go from one neighborhood to another, that might be a distance of three or four or five miles, there's rarely a good option. Certainly not, not a very convenient option. And what most people have done when they've needed to make those trips is take a taxi, take an Uber. So now uh, Revel brings a, another way for them to do it that's less expensive, about a quarter of the price of, of Uber, that has no emissions, and that really kind of replaces a car trip, and is also a lot of fun. And I think uh, one of the things we found, and I actually wrote a blog on this topic uh, when I was in London last summer and hopped on a jump bike to take, to take a trip that I only had a small amount of time to take and I would never have taken had it not been for the availability of the jump bike. But we're seeing also with Revel a lot of induced demand. That's not surprising because I've always said that the mobility market is one of the most elastic in the world. You make it less expensive. You make it more convenient. You're going to get more of it. People want to go more places and they want to go and conduct more commerce. And once they run out of places to go, then they want the better pizza from six miles away rather than the one from around the corner. So there's kind of no limit to it. And you can continue to induce demand. And up to a certain point, I think that's a tremendously healthy and tremendously a contributor to the economy and to GDP and to be encouraged. There's obviously a certain point at which it gets to chaos. And that's why I think another thing we'll see in the course of this decade is finally policymakers getting around to using price signals in the one place that they've just strangely never been used, which is you know some of the most expensive real estate in the world has always been free. I like to say, if you drive to a meeting in Midtown Manhattan and you want to park your car in a garage because there's really no place to park in the street in the middle of a weekday afternoon, that garage is going to charge you $70 for an hour and a half. 
uh, if you bring your nephew along, he can drive your car around the block for you. It's more convenient. You don't have to go down and pick your car up. And it doesn't cost you anything. And your car is congesting some of the most in-demand real estate in the country and causing emissions and other externalities. But it's free. And that's ridiculous. And there's got to be a price signal on that. It'll come. But nice thing about a Rebel or, or a jump bike or a scooter is they don't cause so much externalities. They don't take up a lot of space. So the price for those will be much less than it will be for large vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. With the vehicles, obviously, we've seen the shift from scooters into something like an e-moped. And Horace, you know, Horace has defined everything from up to up to under 500 kgs as being the micromobility definition. Where do you see it going? And where do you, I mean, in the companies that you're starting to see, do you see new vehicles coming out that you are excited about or thinking about investing in? Do you see it's logical that we end up back with something that's like a one-seater quadricycle or a two-seater quadricycle, kind of almost looking like a car, but it's electric and a lightweight? You know, it's funny because back in the, in the early EV days when everyone, the politically correct language was all of the above. And I said, no, actually, it's not all the above because ethanol doesn't make any sense and hydrogen doesn't make any sense. And it's really just EVs. It's the silver bullet. But in the case of vehicle type in urban settings going forward, I think all of the above does apply. I think depending on, on the price point, depending on the nature of the trip, you may want a kick scooter, you may want an e-bike. You may want a regular bike if you want the exercise. You may want a moped if you want to get there faster. And then there's going to be vehicles that are, you know, closer to cars. I think of form factors like uh, Renault's Twizy and, and Toyota has uh, also a, a pod vehicle. And I think those will also proliferate once shared platforms bring them to market. Whereas I think the most interesting place to watch, it's policymakers, because that's what's going to tell the tale. And, and the fun thing about this moment, is that we have effectively 200 parallel experiments going on in cities around the world. Tel Aviv's already changed its scooter regulations three or four times in 18 months, trying to figure out how to cope with this. You know, I like to say if Mike Bloomberg was still mayor of New York City, I don't have any doubt he would already have picked an uptown avenue, a downtown avenue, and said, you know, to use Arce's language, you know, only for vehicles under 500 kilograms and, and no emissions. Imagine how much fun that would be if, like, all of a sudden 8th Avenue is just open to all of these vehicles that are all clean and all you know small and, and enable uh, people to have their, their own forms of personal mobility. So I think there will be policymakers who make bold steps like that. And without a doubt, they'll become harbingers for the rest of the world. Bloomberg himself, when he uh, banned smoking in uh, restaurants and bars in Manhattan, everybody thought it was an insane move. But turns out I, I can go into a restaurant in Tel Aviv and you can't smoke in there. And that's because of what Bloomberg did. There'll be somebody who's the Mike Bloomberg uh, mobility who's going to be a mayor in some city who's going to be very progressive on this and understand the power of it. And then I think we'll see all these different smaller vehicle forms proliferate. I think if we're to pick a, an early contender for that, I would say it's Annie Hidalgo in Paris, the Parisian mayor, because she's just gone and moved 70% of the car parks in the city. They had a pretty unregulated like scooter market. And certainly when you think about Paris as being... Well, every French person I've ever spoken to about this has just been, uh, well, who would have thought <laughs> that France would be the leader on this stuff, you know, would be the one to adopt laissez-faire attitudes around new forms of mobility, et cetera, et cetera. But they really have. And I think they're, uh, it's considered to be one of the largest scooter markets in the world already. And I, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. In fact, I actually see that accelerating. Absolutely. 
So the other thing that Horace and I oftentimes talk about is that these are smartphones on wheels and, and a lot of the investments that you've done until date have been in the vehicle intelligence or vehicle analytics and you know where can you add software and intelligence and IP to the existing mobility options. Where do you see the opportunities for micromobility and how are you thinking about that space and thinking about it as being maybe a computing platform? Do you buy Horace's argument that it's an emergent computing platform? And if so, how do you think it, how does that inform your investment strategy there? Absolutely. In, in fact, I think I see it best through the eyes of one of our portfolio companies uh, that came out at a very kind of auspicious moment about a little over three years ago. And that's Phantom Auto doing teleoperations. So they launched at CES, I would say, probably at the sort of peak of hype around AVs, around level four robotic taxis. And they launched by driving their Ford from San Francisco to Las Vegas from their office in San Francisco. In other words, teleoperation, meaning like remote control driving. And so that was quite a show because everybody is demonstrating at that time their AVs. But, you know, until Waymo recently uh, actually took the safety drivers out, you didn't get the sort of sexy visual of the car actually going along highways uh, with no one in it. And they were able to provide that through teleoperation. And they build themselves as a backup for level four vehicles. Uh, when a level four vehicle found itself in a construction area or found itself in some situation that couldn't resolve itself, it sent a little ping back to the home office and somebody with a steering wheel would see what was going on take the vehicle out of trouble with a remote steering wheel and send it back on its way. Obviously, as uh, we entered the uh, trough of disillusionment around level four and robotic taxis, Phantom was anxious to find other applications and they, they found several. One of them actually is a deal with Postmates to provide teleoperation services for their electric robotic delivery vehicles that Postmates is launching. You can also see that same technology getting applied uh, maybe to rebalancing of micromobility vehicles. So there's an example of sort of a technology that's designed for first for automotive, but really goes through the mo mobility stack. Um, we've got another company uh, called Upstream, which nominally provides cybersecurity solutions to fleets. It sits in between the cloud that operates the fleets and, and the vehicles themselves. And, you know, some of their first interest is obviously around rental car companies and around even OEMs, but they also are seeing a lot of demand from the potential to provide both cybersecurity services as well as data analytics and other things that they can do for uh, mobility operators of all sorts. So definitely, I think this sort of technology layer that was already making its way into traditional vehicles is now migrating into these new types of vehicles and providing all sorts of possibilities. I'd love for you to talk a bit more about the trough of disillusionment in autonomous, because it feels in many ways, and Horace and I have been talking about a lot, that we are in the trough of disillusionment now for micro. The, the sort of explosive growth that we saw in the beginning, the hype, et cetera, has really given way to, okay, cities are, that's wonderful, scooters are cool. We really like that you have them in our city. Will expand it by maybe 50% over the next three years, and that a lot of the kind of the low hanging fruit has already been taken, and that there's a long tail for all of the infrastructure adaptation that needs to happen for people to really be able to, you know, for, for cities to be able to absorb it and have safe infrastructure for people to go and ride these micro mobility devices. Based on what you've seen with the autonomous, do you see that there's a trough of dissolution still in micro? If there is, 
what would you be saying to entrepreneurs who are thinking about this space? You know, I think the people who invented the Gartner hype cycle theory could not find a better, more extreme example than autonomous vehicles, you know, where we went from disbelief in a couple of years to sort of like the public embracing the notion that everybody was going to be hailing their driverless Ubers to a couple of years later, everybody saying this is never going to happen. So that phenomenon, I think, has happened in, in the extreme. And that's, I don't think we're seeing that at all in micromobility. I think maybe a much more shallow version of it, because you know the first 12 or 18 months were almost unprecedented, as Horace and you have pointed out, in terms of the adoption rates as you compared them to Uber and Lyft and, and other things uh, before them. So it was natural that things were going to have to settle back and investors were going to have to catch their breaths and these uh, companies were going to have to figure out sort of how to optimize the vehicles to improve the unit economics and all that. And I think, you know, that that's all happening right now. But, you know, we can't get away from certain physical constraints that we already talked about in terms of urbanization and in terms of the desire for more mobility. And there's just not a lot of directions to go in. I imagined a world, kind of a utopian world, a, a few years ago where there was a ballet of uh, AVs that used all the road space perfectly because they were all operating in concert. And as a result, we could double, triple, quadruple the amount of throughput in urban roads. But you know what? Given the growth in cities and given how elastic the market is for mobility, it's not enough. If you're going to make it that easy, that cheap to get around, and like I said, not just people, but goods, there's going to be even more demand. So so going smaller, going to vehicles that are more commensurate with the task at hand. And you know, for me, if it's getting from my bus stop, the uh, the ten blocks or so to my office, which I can walk most days, but if I, you know, in a hurry and, and there's a, a scooter there, it's it's really it's the perfect uh, solution for that particular trip. I'm not going to hail a cab to do that. Then there's so many more examples of that. So, you know, we we've seen the statistics on younger people moving to cities without driver's licenses, without any intention of utilizing the parking space that the building may have designated for their residents, less so as time goes by. But I think that the trend is is clear. And even if there are sort of ebbs and flows in the speed with which various modes proliferate, we all see the direction that things are moving and I don't see that changing. And in the breakdown between owned and shared, do you, you know, Horace has come out more recently as being very bullish on shared as a, as a platform that he sees that a lot of these a lot of the trips will end up happening on shared if we look at how a trip distribution in the city will break down. That people will own their own vehicles, sure, but actually most of the greater volume of trips will be on the shared systems. Do you see that being the way that that's going to play out as well? Or do you think that this will default to kind of how the auto industry has largely worked and that 95% of these vehicles and 95% of the trips will be on privately owned micromobility devices? Well, I should say that before the micromobility revolution kicked in, there are, were already a lot of kick screws in, in Tel Aviv. Uh, a lot of people went out and bought them because they figured out this is the best way to get around. And then they schlepped them into their meetings and their offices and all that, and some still do. I think that will continue to be true, but I also think the majority in most places, in most city environments, uh, the majority is going to be shared because 
I think people, for most use cases, just find it more convenient. As long as there's enough density, as long as there's enough uh, deployment, that you can have relative confidence that there's going to be a vehicle available. I find it to be less burdensome than to have to worry about your own vehicle, worry about that you got to buy it, that you got to insure it, that you got to take care of it, and that you got to find a way to place to put it where it's not going to get stolen, where you know you got to maybe schlep it into a building. So I think most people prefer sharing, but obviously the name of the game is diversity. So some people choose to own and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Cool. Well, I'm just aware that we're kind of running up against time, but I'm curious if there's anything else that you, in the micromobility world that you're thinking about that I haven't touched on that you thought might be of interest to the audience. I think we've covered pretty much the waterfront as it, as it stands today. The most exciting things about this is just how rapidly it's evolving. So I'm sure you know, if we have this conversation six months from now, there'll be things that, that we didn't even imagine that already will, will appear. You know, we're, we're, we're lucky enough in our office in Tel Aviv, we've got uh, one of the busy strips that goes right by with, with a large bike lane, and it's basically like a scooter highway. And so um, we can literally look out our office window and see the trends emerge and talk to the people and, and get a sense for what excites them. Every, everybody in my office, by the way, commutes either by uh, public transit or by scooter. So it's exciting to see it emerge both from the perspective of an investor and, uh, and the perspective of a user. Okay, so there is one final question. And this is a conversation that I had with Martin Mignot from Index Ventures because he was saying, look, I'm increasingly finding myself drawn into public debates around infrastructure. As an investor, I think a lot about how to accelerate the adoption of micromobility, but the constraining factor that I can see for safe use is, is infrastructure. And yet that's a public there's a public right of ways, it's public decision-making processes, and it's slow. How do you think through that part? Or how do you think we can better solve that part for micromobility? How we can better solve the... Like a rapid deployment of infrastructure that would make these things safe. To do it rapidly, I can't see any way other than to restrict the cars. And in many places, that means you know making micromobility-only roads, which I think it makes sense in a lot of places. There's a book that is not for everyone because it's just way too long, but I did slog through it over a number of years. It's called The Power Broker. It's the biography of Robert Moses, who unbelievably enough sort of was the literally the power broker in New York City, New York State from 1920s to the 1960s. And most of the roads and bridges that surround the five boroughs of Manhattan and beyond were envisioned and were built by Robert Moses. And when you read the book, you get sick to your stomach because he not only didn't do it in, in what was in the best interest of the public, he did it in spiteful ways and in ways that were just whimsical and not uh, with the best interest of the public at heart. But you also look around New York and you realize that a lot of that stuff, just there's just no way to change. And I kind of see this, this industry, mobility at large, but certainly micromobility, a big piece of it as the way to finally improve some of the things that were so radically done wrong in an age that Moses really ushered in, putting the car at the center of the universe. You know, nothing wrong with cars, I should say. A lot of our investors are autom automakers, and I think cars contributed to increasing standards of livings for people tremendously over the last 100 years, and they have played a hugely important role, and they will continue to play an important role going forward. But as we continue to want to live more densely and live in cities, it's just, uh, you know, as we've said, impractical for everybody to have their own car. And, and young people don't want that, to have their own car. 
So as that becomes more understood, I think we'll we'll see policymakers, you know, in some cases, yeah, shift infrastructure, but in other cases, you know, just sort of change the rules to uh, make it safer to be out there on a uh, kick scooter, on a on an e-bike or a moped or or what have you. Excellent. And so, uh, Michael, if people want to uh, track you down, are you on Twitter uh, or have a personal blog or anything? Yep, I'm on Twitter at Mike JGR, and I'm on LinkedIn. And um, uh, people are free to, to reach out. All right. Well, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to having you on uh, again, maybe in a year or two, and we can uh, and we can discuss what those changes have been. It sounds good. It's been a pleasure, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Thanks. 